Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here. This is a post-match thoughts video on Novak Djokovic's 16th Grand Slam title. He beat Roger Federer 13-12 in the 5th. It's the first time in Wimbledon men's singles history that the 12-all tiebreak was even played. It happened in the final. It was the longest final ever, and it was one of the craziest matches ever. Uh, Federer had two match points. Djokovic actually, uh, or Federer rather, won more total points than Djokovic. It was a crazy, crazy match and a difficult one to wrap the old brain around. Uh, but I will try my very best to break down what was a total uh, whirlwind of a match. <clears throat> um, of course, first of all, congratulations to Novak Djokovic on an effort and a performance that was defined by grit and determination and perseverance. Uh, I think that in, in a way, uh, Djokovic should be more proud of himself for this win. Actually, not in a way. I think definitively, Djokovic should be more proud of himself for this win than he was for his Australian Open uh, immaculate performance against Rafa Nadal. Uh, because t to me, th this showed actually probably more championship qualities than the match in, in Australia did. And then for Roger Federer, uh, I think everyone is gutted for, for Roger because this is one of those matches that no one deserved to lose. And for most of the match, I think it's fair to say that Federer was putting the pressure on and possibly even outplaying Djokovic. It was, it was Djokovic's incredible uh, tolerance for playing under pressure and withstanding Federer's barrage that was able to get him to the pressure moments. And then once he was in the pressure moments, that's where Djokovic was able to uh, outplay Roger Federer in the match. Let's talk about a couple of the big points. Because when it comes to a match like this, I've said this before, this is always my philosophy, there's no use in going big picture and saying uh, this player was better than this player and that's why that player won. It was such a close match that either player could have easily, easily won. At that point, uh, it's, a, it's an arm wrestle, but it, it's kind of, it's a coin flip. Uh, it comes down to the big points. 40-15, Roger Federer serving. He hits sort of a safe second serve to the Djokovic forehand. So this is on the deuce side, and credit to Novak Djokovic. He went after that forehand, just like he did, not quite, but, excuse me, almost like he did in the 2011 U.S. Open semifinal. Down 40-15, same score, forehand return, 
at the U.S. Open, he hit it for a winner cross court, saved the match points, went on to win the match. In this case, he hit it quite nicely right at Federer's body. It was almost like a body serve, uh, good depth, good pace, and Federer couldn't quite get out of the way. He caught it late, and it went wide. Then, 30-40, second match point for Federer. Uh, he makes his first serve, I want to say. Federer's in control of the point. Uh Gets Djokovic on the defensive. Djokovic hits a, a, a pretty, you know, a short cross-court backhand, and Federer sees his chance, so he runs around his forehand and hits an inside-in approach shot. Whenever you hit the inside-in approach shot, the cross-court pass is open. And, God, this sounds awfully familiar. Just like Nadal did in the semifinal last year, Federer's approach shot was a little bit too safe. Not close enough to the baseline, not close enough to the sideline. It wasn't the easiest pass in the world. It wasn't the hardest pass in the world. It was your average passing shot, but even down match point, Novak made it perfectly right inside the sideline. Then it was Deuce, still Federer in the driver's seat. He's still serving for the match. Um, they get into a baseline rally. He doesn't make his first serve uh, on Deuce, you know, so it would have been nice... For Federer, uh, for Federer's sake, for him to make a first serve there, he doesn't. They get into a baseline rally. Djokovic goes deep to the Federer backhand. Federer drops it short on a uh, cross-court backhand. And um, Djokovic pulls him out wide, and Federer um, misses a defensive squash forehand. I can't remember if it was a backhand down the line by Djokovic or if it was an inside-in forehand. But the but the major point is Federer doesn't make a first serve and drops a cross-court backhand short. Then on break point, Djokovic makes a really good return. This time Federer made the first serve, um, but it got it came back at Federer pretty quickly, and they get into a forehand cross-court rally. In this case, Djokovic a strong forehand cross-court. Puts Federer on the run, and Federer misses the forehand. Notice that Federer didn't really make a terrible mistake in that sequence. It was Djokovic actually taking it to Federer and really earning that break of serve. So Federer fans can at least take solace in that, and, and Roger himself can at least take solace in that. <clears throat> uh, he had the chances, but he didn't really throw the chances away in this case. Uh, then, in the 12-all tiebreak, two points, uh, the mini-breaks, Federer served volleys and missed a half volley. Uh, but Djokovic, a good job getting the return low. And then, um, there was a point where Federer ran around the backhand and hit, again, an inside-out for forehand that was a little bit too safe. Same thing, whenever you hit an inside-out forehand, you gotta hit it well, you gotta hit it hard. Because there's the open court. Djokovic hits to the open court, the down-the-line backhand. He struck it beautifully, and it won him the point for 6-3. Um, and then Federer missed uh, a forehand on match point. Actually shanked it really badly. So those are the big points I want to draw attention to. When it comes to the match chronologically, so Djokovic won three tiebreaks here. Two traditional 7-6 tiebreaks, and then the 12-all tiebreak in the fifth set. Uh... The first set tiebreak, Federer's made a lot of forehand errors going after it. He was the aggressor in the entire first set. Djokovic doing more of the moving and Federer playing, uh, you know, the kind of tennis that Federer wants to play. Djokovic just kind of hanging in there. 
uh, missed a lot of forehands. Then, in the third set tiebreak, Federer missed a ton of backhands. Just wasn't as solid in the big moments off the ground when it counted. Um, and we'll talk about some of the things Federer did well, uh, for sure. But I think the, the big picture for this match uh, was the thing that I kind of thought about, reflected on, and this took me a little while, is once again we have a scenario where a lot of Federer's weapons are working really well. But Djokovic's weapons are a little bit more reliable and repeatable. I'll explain. Djokovic is not going to all of a sudden lose his movement, his defense, and his consistency in a big moment. In the first set tiebreak, in the third set tiebreak, Djokovic always had his consistency, his movement, and his defense. Federer, on the other hand, if you look at um, the first and third set tiebreaks, too aggressive, made errors. If you look at some of the moments in when he had the match points, the inside-in forehand approach, the inside-out forehand in the 12-all tiebreak, too passive, not the same aggressive player that maybe you would have uh, at two-all in the second set where he's loose and he's executing his weapons. The point is, Federer, you know, he's, I think as a whole at Wimbledon, handled his nerves quite nicely. But in the biggest moments in this match, we were reminded of how repeatable Djokovic's weapons are compared to Federer's weapons. So repeatable. And then Djokovic, uh, keeping the ball in the court in this match, when Federer had so much variety in his pace, his depth, and his height, was incredible. Djokovic's north-south movement which which is really difficult for him. And it was really bad. It, it wasn't as good in the second set and the fourth set where Federer completely picked Novak apart. And uh, it was a master class in those sets by, by Federer. And, I mean, uh, Djokovic... Now, I had some streaming issues, but it, it and I actually kind of missed a lot of the second set, but it seems like Djokovic kind of mentally gave up the second set pretty e- easily. Um, but... Even in the, but I think that he was exhausted from the first set from having to deal with Federer's pressure. And then when he went down in the second set, I think he was mentally exhausted. The short chip from Federer, which drew Djokovic in, and then he would, he would kind of repeatedly give give Djokovic shots, mix it up even to the forehand, so he couldn't really run around and hit his forehand, and he had to hit backhands. The short chip that I talked about in the preview worked brilliantly at times, but Djokovic was just willing to to grind through it and make as many balls as he could until he got balls to attack, like in the pressure moments. But it was very strange. Um, Djokovic... Did not make a lot of first serves, not not much over 50%. And he missed, he actually put less returns in play than Federer. He missed a lot of backhand returns off of second serves, which is very rare for him. Uh, and really didn't have his A stuff. And that's why Federer was able to get so many opportunities and outplay Djokovic for, for so much of the time. Uh, Federer's return was pretty good for the most part, but Djokovic did do a better job than Nadal did of mixing it up. I thought that, you know, I never knew if Federer was serving to the forehand or the backhand. 
Never really knew. Um, or did I say Federer? I meant I never knew if Djokovic was serving to the forehand or the backhand. And Federer missed, missed some returns down the stretch. Thought Djokovic's ground strokes, his aggressive ground strokes, got better uh, towards the latter stages of the fifth set, especially his forehand. So that was timely for Djokovic. Um, and those are my, my main points. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing stuff. Uh, there's, again, this is, this is a difficult match to break down, but uh, it was Djokovic's, Djokovic's perseverance and, and uh, his ability to keep the ball on the court when Federer was giving him so many different looks and so many different balls. Uh, his movement never, never escapes him, his movement and defense. Uh, he never got frustrated. And in the biggest moments, it, it seemed like Federer just couldn't find what he found against Nadal, which is aggression in the court. It was either a little too passive or errors. Um, that's all I got. So um, hope everyone enjoyed the match. Look out for the Wimbledon vlog, and I'm not really sure what I'm doing other than that. Um, in terms of content from the week, but maybe a Q&A. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today on the program, we welcome in Steve Flink to talk about 2019 Wimbledon, and I think it's fitting because better than to talk about X's and O's, uh, I think a big-picture discussion... Uh, some legacy things, some state of the game things. We talk big three on this uh, on this show. We talk about the final, obviously at length. I think maybe 17, 18 minutes we went talking about the Federer Djokovic final. Uh, we also hit on Nadal. A lot of big three talk in this one. Uh, so uh, I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. I bring to you Steve Flink. Steve Flink is a tennis hall of famer, an author of the book, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, and a writer for Tennis.com. He joins the program once again. Steve, uh, it's always great to have you on, and uh, this should be a particularly fun one. Absolutely, Gil. I'm looking forward to it, and it was, it was great seeing that you were part of this tournament, too. I mean, we've had our talks through the years, and there you were on the grounds at the All England Club, and I know how much you enjoyed it. So let's look back on it. It was, it was a terrific fortnight. Yeah, it was great to see you. I was there uh, Monday, Tuesday, and uh, but we have not discussed uh, the final weekend, and it was an incredible final weekend. Just before we get into it, uh, wh where are we reaching you? Are, you? are you in Newport yet, or are, are you still home? No, I'm still home. I'll be heading up to Newport for the ceremonies. I head up to, on Friday, and the ceremony will be on Saturday at 6 p.m. Good move on their part, by the way, because... Over the years, they've always had the induction ceremonies in the heat of the afternoon, usually at noon, 12.30 in there, and they decided to move it this year to 6 p.m. So that's going to be fun, and I'm looking forward to getting back to Newport. Who are the uh, inductees this year for the Tennis Hall of Fame? Well, this year it will be uh, Evgeny Kafelnikov and Mary Pierce and Lee Na, and the similarities, they all won two singles majors. And uh, they all, I mean, Kafelnikov did it all, Davis Cup, number one in the world, couple of majors, even a doubles major at the French. And Lee Na obviously was a major, you know, in a cultural sense, which he did, yeah. for, you know, putting China on the map in a way that even Michael Chang didn't quite do. And uh, she won her French and Australian, just as uh, Kafelnikov had done. And then you had Mary Pierce, who also did this, won the same two. It's interesting. They all 
came through in Australia and Roland Garros, but didn't win Wimbledon in the Open, but had fantastic records. So it's a nice trio, all worthy of the induction, and looking forward to seeing them go in. Yeah, nice class. You were part of the class uh, last year, I, wa I want to say, right? Well, it was believe last year. It or not, it's been, believe it or not, it's been two years. Oh, no. Gone fast. <laughs> class of 2017, but I was lucky enough to go in with Andy Roddick and, and Kim Kleisters and Monique Kaufman, the uh, wheelchair player. So that was uh, I was very happy to be included among them. I won't I won't make you comment, but I think your class was better. I won't you don't have to comment though. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to compare. Yeah. But I, I, I'm I'm very happy for this trio coming up because I think they all deserve it. Absolutely. And, and it'll it'll be a nice ceremony in three different countries with Russia, China, Mary Pierce sort of I call I think of her as sort of a, a French slash, slash American even though technically she's French, she just spent so much much time in this country, and and uh, Nick Balateri, by the way, is going to be her speaker, and that that ought to be nice. Uh, well, that'll be worth the price of admission in itself. The character Nick Balateri, uh, head coach at and the he at in, the IMG you know, he Academy, also, he went in in 2014. So Nick's a Hall of Famer, yes. but I, I'm 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 glad that she asked him, and I. It's it's nice that he'll be a part of this. A great documentary on Balateri, and I, uh, I want to say Showtime. Uh, anyway, no no time to waste. Uh, let's get into, let's start with the final. Um, of course, I did read your piece up on Tennis.com to you. It is a top 10 match of all time. Uh, but beyond that, what what do you feel is the legacy of Djokovic over Federer 13-12 in the fifth? Well, I think uh, there'd be, there's so much to it, Gil. And that, uh, obviously, the first uh, first time we ever had the tiebreaker employed at 12 all. It never happened, amazingly, throughout the yep. fortnight. Men's or women's singles, only in doubles matches. So the fact that we'd have the breakthrough in the final, in a way, I think that was a good thing, by the way. Because imagine if this had been a semifinal and they went to 13-12 in the fifth, almost five hours. I suspect that Djokovic, uh, if he'd had to go through that and then play Nadal or somebody else in the final, that he could, it really could have crippled him. And that's that's why, by the way, I still don't agree with them. I thought it was it was immensely exciting to to watch, but I I, I still feel they should do it at six all. Be that as it may, it led to a lot of drama, as you know, because if you look at the first half of the set, I mean, you look at thirteen twelve as basically two sets. You look at the first half of it, Gil, and there's Djokovic with the break for four two, and I thought he would finally kind of come out of him, himself a, a bit, that he'd get more excited, more revved up. We'd see a little positive emotion, fist pumping, and that he'd, he would sort of uh, will his right way through that next game, serve his way to 5-2, and the match would probably be over. He played one of his most nervous service games of the match to let Roger back in, but that, that, that led to so much uh, great tennis ahead that we wouldn't have seen. Because then, obviously, you know, Federer held for four all, and they both kept holding until seven all when Djokovic let a thirty love lead get away, and Roger played a nice game to break him, hit a forehand pass off a, an approach from Djokovic that wasn't struck as well as he would have liked. And so uh -huh. there is Roger at eight seven forty fifteen, as you know, having just served consecutive aces to put himself at double match point. And then we had deja vu all over again because, of course, in 2010 and 11, this had happened in very similar circumstances in Djokovic Federer's semifinals, where the first year in 10, uh, uh, Djokovic was serving at 4 5, 15, 40, held on, hit a couple of winners on the match points, and won at 7 5 in the fifth. And then the next year, Roger was serving 
5-3-40-15. And remarkably, Djokovic, who hit a screaming forehand return winner on the first match point, came all the way back then, too, and won that one 7-5 in the fifth. But here they were in a final. And this had never happened in a Wimbledon final since 1948. You know, the last guy to win Wimbledon, even saving match points along the way, was Neil Frazier in 1960. So you see how rare it is. And here they were, and here's Federer poised, having hit those aces. And he misses the first serve, and Federer makes that nice return down the middle, and Roger's kind of on his heels and hits the inside-out forehand, misses it. And then uh, the next point, he, he didn't hit a good approach. The return was not deep, and Roger didn't hit the approach off the forehand with conviction. And yeah. Feder, uh, Djokovic burned him with the cross-court forehand passage. Our winner, two more points, he's even. And we're at eight all. I think every, I think the entire center court crowd was was just astonished. There was almost silence to that. There was so much shock because everybody assumed it was over. And so they move on again, Gil. And this is, again, where the latter stage has got to be so gripping is that they move on to 11-all. To his credit, uh, uh, Roger didn't collapse. I mean, that was a, that was could have been a crippling blow to him, but he picked up and served a bunch of good games. And we get to 11-all, and Djokovic seemed to have an easy hold in hand at 40-love. And the next thing you know, he's having to fight off two break points, but he does it. And then at 12-all, we go to that tie break. And what was interesting about that, Bill, is, of course, Djokovic had won his two earlier sets, both in tie breaks. And here he was winning a third one. And all three, he was sturdy as can be. He was mm -hmm. giving nothing away, playing solid percentage tennis. And Federer, his ground game let him down flagrantly, uh, flagrantly particularly the four off the forehand side. And yep. Djokovic picked away at it, played really smart tennis. And I think the two proudest moments for Djokovic, by the way, were when he served at 4-3, because he'd gone to 4-1 in that decisive tiebreak i thought it, that he might well pick up another point on roger's serve but federer held both of his points on serve made it four three so there's a lot of pressure on djokovic serving at four three in a fifth set tiebreak that way and he hit he had a nice first serve that set up a forehand winner to make it five three and then on the next point he kept peppering away at joke at, at uh, roger's backhand and federer finally ran around hit a couple of inside out forehands but on the second one Djokovic measured his back end down the line just immaculately. Yeah. And it, it, because, as you saw, it was cleared the net by a wide margin and didn't go too close to the sideline, but it was still an outright winner. So he had measured it. I mean, it was, it was just it was neatly executed under pressure to make a winner there. And that really that, mm -hmm. that put Federer in a terrible bind to have to serve it 3-6. And, and, of course, it ended on that shank forehand of his the seven three for Djokovic, but it was it was it was confounding match as you know in many ways. Fourteen more points won by Federer in the match. It, you know, a couple of decisive sets won by Federer and Joe Novak winning all three of his in tie breaks. And to me, the the mystery to me, I don't know how you felt, was what came over Djokovic in the second and fourth sets when he had built these leads. Why he was why he seemed to sort of almost start sleepwalking especially in the second set where he lost his serve three times. I just, it was baffling to me. And I think part of it related to what he said in the press conference after, which is that he was, he was determined to keep his cool. He knew this crowd was going to yep. be on fire for, for Federer, that it was going to be in, you know, the typical atmosphere in which he plays Federer, where they're just overwhelmingly uh, on the Swiss player's side. And everybody experiences that, but I think he felt like he might, uh, provoke them or incite them if he if he showed any emotion. 
So I think he maybe took it too far because he was so listless in the second set. And then he kind of repeated it in the fourth set after playing a good third set tie break, where he, where from two all he lost his serve two times running, and he got one of the breaks back, but Federer served it out the second time for 6-4. So uh, I think the match really, it, we wouldn't be talking about it as an, as a classic or an epic or a top ten of all time, as I put it, if it were not for that just stunning fifth set. I agree. Because that was the, that, right? It was the only time the two of them were sort of simultaneously producing great, great tennis. You know, earlier, I mean, yes, they did it in the first set. I shouldn't say that. Not the only time. The first set they did it, but there were no breaks, and it was still first-class tennis. And then it was a runaway for Federer in the second. Good third set, but I wouldn't call it a great set. The standard was not nearly as high as it had been in the first. And then again, Federer getting on a roll in the fourth and Djokovic sort of falling into this sort of passivity that I didn't like. But in the fifth, we saw them both really reveal to us why they're such great champions. I think the reason for, for the letdowns, so to speak, in the second and the fourth set was the immense pressure that Federer was putting on Djokovic tactically, uh, changing pace better, uh, using more variation of height and depth. And I just felt like it took a lot of effort for Djokovic in, in the way that match was going to kind of hang in there. And he even said that that's kind of how he was yeah, playing they, they, the match, to just yeah, hang in he there. Did. And he said he felt he was on his heels. But that, to me, I, I, I get it. That's a good explanation. But the thing, why, the thing about that is that Roger was still throwing that at him in the first and third sets. And the difference was that Djokovic didn't let his guard down on his own yeah. serve. More but willing he, to he dig in. Pressure. Excuse me? More willing to dig in in the first and yeah, third sets. Yeah, he dug in and he was and he was disciplined on his own serve. He wasn't wasn't getting really any money, any chances to break until he broke Federer at the end of the fourth. That was the other uh -huh. fascinating part of this skirmish to me, Gil, is that Djokovic had one of his worst return of serve days ever in a big match. Agree. It got better from late in the fourth and through the fifth. Better. But it was pretty abysmal for him up until then because I'm talking, and I'm not talking about, this was combined with some brilliant serving from Roger. And the first serve was so deadly in the deuce court where he was making it break short and wide and Djokovic just could not get onto that serve. And even when he did make contact, he just was unable to make those flashy forehand returns that we've seen him execute so often in the past against Roger where he reads the wide serve and jumps on it like the famous match point in 2011. He wasn't able to make any of those. And so that I give full marks to Federer because the first serve was so precise and, and he moved it around beautifully in both boxes. But the second serve returns were inexplicable to me. Federer has a, a very good second serve, but Djokovic has always threatened him. There's nobody that can really uh, trouble him too much on their second serve because he takes it early. He takes that high back backhand return and sends it back inches from the baseline. Everybody has nightmares trying to deal with Djokovic's second serve return. It was mm -hmm. it was just not there that day, which is to what made this victory to me uh, doubly remarkable. In that you you can win a, a big match like that on a day when when your primary strength is essentially not there. That took that and and maybe that's also in addition to what you're saying. That's also what was going on in his mind. What was what was uh, the cause for consternation within him? Was that he knew he, you know, he just wasn't making the returns that would give him the confidence and provide the spark to get him going. Just was not happening.
This match actually changed the way I think of Novak Djokovic and just in the way it played out and Federer winning the majority of the points and Djokovic needing three tie breaks to come through. In the past, if someone asks me uh, what's so great about Novak Djokovic, I'd probably talk about his return and his flexibility in, in movement and his consistency. Uh, but now after, after a match like that, I think I'm a lot more likely to include in that his, his mental resilience and his uh, nerve management. The fact that with 15,000 rooting against him in center court, he didn't have his best stuff, but when it really mattered in the end, in the pressure moments, he never wilted. Oh, absolutely. No, and I think, let's face it, that he had, he had displayed those qualities that you're, you're so For sure. rightly, rightly saluting in those 2010-2011 semis against Federer at the U.S. Open. Is that, again, was with crowds that were overwhelmingly on Federer's side. And, uh, you know, to recover from double match point down in both of those, now do it for a third time. You're right. It's obviously it was more glaring. It was more even more noticeable to you this time, and more significant because it was the Wimbledon final as opposed to a U.S. Open semifinal. That does make a big difference. But you know what? It 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 was. I've always thought that day in day out, match in match out, that Nadal was the mentally the toughest player I'd ever seen. But I've never seen anybody reach the scale of the heights that Djokovic has in these big pressure matches. And to do that three times as someone of Federer's stature, to come back also from 4-2, 30-15 down in the fifth against Nadal in the 2012 Australian final, that took some doing because everybody thought Nadal had that match now in his grasp and he ended up winning at 8-6 in the fifth. And that was, that was an astounding effort too. And, uh, you know, if I, 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 no, Djokovic can't really explain it. I mean, you've probably seen some of the interviews. It's something that... You can't put your finger on why you're able to do something like that, but it just shows you that he's able to block out. He somehow blocks out the score, he blocks out the pressure, and he just plays the, isolates the point and plays it. And I could sort of see that look on his face after he saved the first match point. It was mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, here we go, next point. Let's see what we can do now. And, and there's been nobody... Uh, in modern times, certainly, I you know I'm sure that I think Tilden had a flair for the dramatic. Bill Tilden in the 20s for making spectacular comebacks, but there's been nobody, uh, certainly in the open era, that has been able to do it as frequently as Djokovic has. And I would I would say, Gil, that it, the proof to me is if you can do that three times to Federer, it's just not an accident. I mean, there's some, there's something really extraordinary in you in you that can pull you through on days like that, and. Again, with the crowds, the crowds are not, they're not propelling you at all. Federer has yeah. that luxury frequently of having the crowds who can't wait to, to find an excuse to cheer for him to make a comeback. But Djokovic has got them, you know, 99% of them cheering against him and for his popular opponent. So it was, it was, it was just an astounding effort. Unless he's hearing Djokovic when they're trying to chant Roger, but that's a separate discussion. Uh, I do want to mention. Well, yeah, you heard. I'm sure you heard he him did, make that comment. Right. He pretends they're saying Novak, which I think is a very smart thing to do. You know, you have to find some tricks within you, something like that, because otherwise it could get very, very depressing. And yeah. and, uh, and I thought that was wise on his part. He talked about all the visualization. He's a pretty unique character, Gil, and I he think is. now that. There's going to be a new appreciation of him from others that's similar to what you just cited. Let's shift gears to Roger Federer. Uh, I've kind of experienced firsthand with 
uh, supporters of Federer even taking the lengths of messaging me on social media and asking for for something positive to take away from this, uh, which I, I was I was just shocked. I mean, it's a huge missed opportunity, but the the Federer fan base was so desolate and shook by by this loss. I I almost think. Who were these people, Gil? Tell me a little bit more the circumstances of their communication with you. I mean, I I got um, some. I got two DMs on Instagram. I got Twitter mentions, and then I also just saw people not speaking directly to me, but people just in general um, really broken down about this loss. But if I actually take a step back and think about it, I just want your opinion uh, on this. You got to think about the Nadal win and how well Federer played in that final. And there's a lot more positives to come away from Wimbledon 2019 for Federer than negatives. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to try to look at it that way. He he won't lose sight of the performance against Nadal, although I have to tell you that I, in my view, I don't know how he looks at it. He doesn't have to look at it that way. I thought I did not think Nadal played uh, anywhere near at the level he'd been in the, in the previous three matches. And then mm -hmm. Nadal was very disappointed in his own ground game, his inability to win the long rallies. Leave that aside. Bottom line is he still beat him. Even with Rafa breathing down his neck at the end, having a break point for five all, saving four match points, it didn't matter. That's Absolutely, that was a positive and one that he clearly relished as he showed on the court with his reaction and his comments afterwards. And then, obviously, twice he's a point away from winning this tournament at 37 and nearly 38 years of age. On the other hand, you just don't know, Gil. It's like it's a positive for Serena. We can talk about her in a minute. Positive for her to be back in another final, but you just don't know how many more of those are going to come your way. It's hard to know. I mean, Federer can certainly console himself with knowing he's in great condition. Also, how well he's dealt with some of these in the past. He didn't go to pieces. Those were really disappointing losses to Djokovic back at those two opens back-to-back, -back, but he moved on. And uh, I think he is very good at that. I think he's, yeah. he's got a very cool, rational side, and I don't think uh, that he'll stay down too long. He'll just be thinking about getting ready for the Open, and we'll see how he can do there. You know, I'm not sure that maybe it's hard for me to know what to expect from him there because we haven't really we, – we've seen some up-and-down Opens from him, including the yeah, loss to John sure. Millman last year, which was a shocker in the round of 16. And, uh, you know, he, he missed it in 16 because of the, the knee and – uh, you know, it, 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 Del Potro beat him the year before when he was kind of hurting. He, ten, he tends to be a bit beat up by that time of the season. So, again, that is next best chance, I believe, probably Wimbledon next year. But, you know, the older you get, you just can't count on anything. I, I think that your message is one that would resonate in his camp, though. I'll say that. To me, as long as Federer is third best and... By most accounts, unless you're talking about Wimbledon or maybe possibly a very fast Australia, uh, but even that's questionable, Federer's probably third best right now. But as long as you're number three and you're maintaining that position, as long as you're beating everyone else and staying competitive against the other two, you have a chance at winning majors. And Yeah, absolutely. Like, no, I don't think, is, though, what do you think, number 20, is, does he win another? Excuse me? I'm still thinking that he adds on to the 20 titles. Maybe well, maybe one more. I don't know. But I think he gets it. I think it's going to be hard. I, 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 I don't rule it out by any means. And uh, But I, I, it has to fall into place. And what we don't know 
is some you know someone like with the gumption of a Sissipas who did it in Australia. That was a great effort on his part, yes. bending off ten break points, never losing his serve, beating him in four sets, beating him in the clutch. There's going to be some of that. Zareb, maybe Zareb recovers his psyche again and starts playing the kind of tennis we know he can play. There are guys out there that could pick him off on given days. Not many, but there's there, there's some, and 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 certainly on hard courts they can. He seems to have this knack for, you know, obviously he's at his very best on grass, and he, so often he can really move through the draw very comfortably at Wimbledon without any, anything, any long skirmishes. Nishikori had him down a set, Nadal took a set, he lost a set in the first round, but overall, uh, he, you know, he, he's, he's in his element on the grass. And as you alluded to, the courts are faster yeah. in Australia, but that didn't stop Sissipas from beating him this year. Uh, he had two great Australians back-to-back before that, winning in 17 and 18. So he certainly would be a threat. The advantage he has there, Gil, is that they go back to Australia and everybody's kind of in the same boat after the offseason. Nobody's quite sure, that sure how well they're playing. And he, he seems to be able to come out of the gates quickly some of those years and really get his game going. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to bet either way, to tell you the truth. I mean, but I do believe he will not be sitting around moping for long after this one. And in in his mind, I, I would hope that he would also say to himself, Novak took that away from me. Novak is a great player. Yeah. Who else but Novak could do that to me? I mean, I think in a way that's what he's going to be saying. So it, it, it'll be fascinating to follow it. And, uh, you know, he he's clearly played, Gil, the, the, again, the, get back to the encouraging part, much better overall this year than what we saw from him following the Australian of 18. If you look at the rest of 18, it was kind of a disappointing year. And, you know, you had the loss to Kevin Anderson from match point up at Wimbledon in the quarters, and the Millman loss at the Open that carried on through the rest of the year. And and then he starts off this year with a Sissipas loss. So there had been a downward trend, and he has clearly bounced back emphatically from that. Exactly. I mean, I think... I think 2019. I think he's looked better than 2018. I don't oh, think no it, doubt. even though no he, doubt even though it. we got the major. I think we agree he's looked better. Um, let's see. Let's let's. I want to ask you about the, the slam count because now it's multiples of two. You got 16 for Djokovic, 18 for Nadal, 20 for Federer. When when these guys are done, and right now that isn't even close. Um, incredibly, how important is this race? for them to finish with the most Grand Slams. Is that ultimately what's going to define who goes down as the greatest player of all time? Well, I think that, you know, I tell you what, Gil, I think that it, it, it's, it's changed so much. And then you go back to the days of Connors and McEnroe, the early open, earlier parts of the open era. Then it, it wasn't all revolving strictly around the slams. But since the Pete Sampras era, it has. That's the defining... That's really what's going to define you ultimately. Years at number one can help, which, by the way, Djokovic is going to start to pile up now. And I think this win is going to almost guarantee, as long as he just plays decently the rest of the year, even if he didn't win the Open, very good chance he finishes this year number one because I don't think we can see Nadal or Federer playing enough or winning enough to, to stop that. So years at number one matter. But, yes, the, the, the crucial uh, ingredient is the slams. So you say, you know, where's it going to turn out? Boy, is that hard to call. Because- I, I don't answer that. Personally, I don't answer that question. But I will say this. I think for Nadal and Federer, it might be about health. For Djokovic, maybe motivation more important than health. I, I agree with that. 
I totally agree with that, and I think he, he I think he's very motivated. This could have been a, a really devastating loss for him because, especially if he'd lost it, it had played out, and he had the four-two lead in the fifth, and then he loses, and he keeps thinking about why did he not play that four-two game in the fifth with more intensity and commitment and resolution. If that if that could have happened, that that I mean that might have really weighed on his mind. Instead, he gets the big lift, and instead of it being 21-15 Federer over him, it, it's 20-16. Rafa in between at 18, as you said. So uh, I, I don't see that motive. I don't see it changing. Yes, his kids are going to be growing up. His family is very important to him. But I think what we've seen, Gil, the big change in Djokovic over the last year is you, if you look at him in days gone by, he, it was kind of like every tournament was almost the same to him. And he tried to peak at the slams, but he was just as – likely to win 1,000s, to win 500s, to pick up his points that way and try to win the slams when he could. Now it's almost entirely about the slams. I mean, look at him this year. He's won Australia, he's won Wimbledon, and his other title is a 1,000 on the clay. And, and some letdowns in other places, but that's partially because his mind is always on peaking for, the, for these, and I think that's going to stay that way. And... Uh, I don't see the motivation waning, and I, I and I, I think he really meant it when he said well, he wasn't kidding when he in the presentation when Federer mentioned his age and how you know how he's inspired by Federer. He is because he wants to believe that at 37 he can be you know as close to the top of his game as Roger is to his right now, and and if that's the case, there's and, and if he's really able to stay up at that high a level, there's no way that he won't break 20. To me, it, the only thing that could stop it is, is an, you know, another elbow-type injury, something that physically sets him back. I mean, granted, we're going to see the Sissipasas and the Zarevs and other Yen Felix, Augur Elisiane. This guy's going to be coming along to challenge, but he's, he's always going to be a very hard guy to beat with his game because the standard is always so high, so consistent, gets so many balls. And look at what he did, Gil. The other thing that was remarkable in this match was despite the return of serve problems, look how great he was in the rallies. Look how, look how much he picked Roger apart in, in hard-fought uh, uh, exchanges from the backcourt. It was remarkable what, what he did in that. It didn't carry over into, his, into the rallies. It was strictly a return of serve problem on the day. I think I have a bit more questions because I feel like he, he looked almost inhuman U.S. Open last year and Australian Open. And, and since then, he's just looked, to me, the best player in the world, but by slim enough margins where you can't, like, I don't really think, I, I just don't feel like he's a shoe-in anymore uh, to be the favorite, going, or maybe to be the favorite, but to win the U.S. Open, for example. I mean, I'm going to have well, some, shoe like, I want to see his draw, for thing. example. Yeah, shoot is one thing. It'll depend. Listen, you have to remember that there's also been a lot going on, you know, in the political world that you follow. Right. And he's had all these meetings. They were having seven-hour meetings on the eve of Wimbledon. There's been things. I think there'll come a point here where I'm not sure exactly what point he'll drop the presidency, but he will somewhere along the line here because it's too, it, it, it drains you. Yeah. But I, I understand what you're saying in one sense, but I also thought his level was very high really through the fortnight. You know, he lost a, you know, a few sets lost, including the semi to Bautista Gut, but overall yeah. very, very consistent. And, yes, that was certainly not his best, and he was the first to admit it. He, I know I could have played better, he says. But I, I think, we, we, you know, we could just as easily see some 
top of the line stuff from him on the hard courts at the open, and especially if he has a can get something good out of Montreal and Cincinnati, win one of those titles, and come in, you know, with his game uh, clicking on all cylinders. I understand what you're what you're getting at, but I I think there's going to be we're going to see even better stuff from him ahead, and that's what a win like this can do yep. for you. Absolutely. And, and the other thing, think about Paris. He got messed up there because of the schedule, but he hadn't lost a set. He was very solid through the French, mm-hmm. uh, right through the Zarat match, and then unfortunately it rained. And I mean that match had already it already rained the day before that, so the quarterfinal was Thursday, and coming back for the semis on Friday, and that that definitely uh, played with his mental state because of the fact that he knew Nadal was on a regular schedule, you know, doing his Tuesday, Friday, Sunday routine while while you're playing every day here, and so. I felt I feel like he was awfully good through most of that tournament too. Let's hit so on. We'll see. And, uh, but but the motivation. The bottom line is the motivation. I just don't see that dwindling at all. And not when you close in on these. Yeah. And and you you know you're building your record. And when you know what it means to you historically, you know you're just right. putting this effort into three or four more years in your life, and then and then you have the rest of your life to enjoy it. Absolutely. Let's hit on Nadal before we go because we've we've sure, certainly given sure. Djokovic and Federer a bit more airtime. Uh, I feel like Wimbledon was pretty similar to the Australian Open because Rafa was uh, blazing through the competition. His level. I I was with you when you asked uh, Mats Vilander if if he thinks that it, you asked him to compare the Australian Open level in the lead up to the Wimbledon level, and he agreed right. it was very similar. I mean, Nadal yeah, was blowing guys that. off he the court. comparison. But and he I was wasn't the same. Because Matt is one of those guys that doesn't always agree with you. He's, he's got very strong opinions. Yeah, we both were seeing that the same way. Yep. I think that your analogy is excellent. And, and that, to me, was why I was so surprised. Not surprised by Roger coming out and playing great tennis, but surprised by Rafa not keeping up his end of the bargain. Because to me... If you looked at it, okay, the first set, fair enough. You know, neither guy could break, and it was well played. A bit like the first set of Djokovic and Federer. You couldn't really quarrel much with it. It was high standard. And and uh, Roger made some great shots from after twice being a mini breakdown in the tiebreak and wins that tiebreak uh, going away. And and then Rafa came back and got on that roll in the second. So once he's and wins it 6-1, so once it's one set all, you, you would think that Nadal would have felt really good about putting the first set aside and, and, and now being in that position. And I just thought he got so tight and early in the third, he kind of threw his serve away. He didn't fail to put a volley away. And then he has three break points to come back on serve and wasn't able to convert. And it seemed to unravel from there. And it had no depth on his shots. I talked to Matt again after the match. You saw the discussion before, days before, but after the match, he was saying, I can't believe how short he was hitting, and he was. The backhand was very short, and mm-hmm. Nadal commented on that after the match, said he was he was obviously disappointed. He felt his backhand was nowhere near as good as it had been in the previous three or four matches. So, And that obviously kind of just, it also carried over into the rest of his game, and he served well the first two sets, not as well after, and his forehand wasn't quite the weapon we expected it to be, and Plus, I was stunned how slow he looked on the running forehand. It was as if Rafa was 37 and Roger was 32. So I thought it was a discouraging performance for him, Gil, because he had the lift of beating Roger in Paris. Granted, he should beat him there. He should win in straight on a windy day on clay. But at least he had a, had ended the five-match losing streak. And it could feel normal again about going out and beating Roger Federer. 
and I do believe he approached this match fully believing in his chances. So he was very deflated afterwards. And and I, I, I have to say, if I were in his camp, I'd be worried about the rivalry with Federer going forward. Yeah. And you and and you're alluding to the fact that that Roger is still a top three guy, and he is. And Rafa, obviously too. You know, he probably end of the year too. But he may now have a problem with both of his chief rivals, not just Djokovic anymore. It, it could be just about as difficult for him dealing with Federer in the near future. I hope I'm wrong. I'd like to see this Nadal-Federer rivalry take on some new twists and turns in the next year or two and have them go back and forth a bit. But I think, you know, now I think six out of seven and winning this match a bit unexpectedly that Federer is getting a bit, a little cocky against him, and I understand why. And and Nadal is the one with the lingering severe doubts. It, it was just really That's... interesting to see the, the level dip that we saw in the final in Australia against Djokovic and the, a similar level dip uh, against against Federer in the semi here. I mean, perhaps with the new style yeah, you know and what, the adaptation. Gil? Yeah, but the thing is that the one in Australia, the difference is that Djokovic has always been a big problem for him when he's at the top of his game. Certainly. And that was his best match of the year. And when he's on like that, as Nadal said that day in Australia, he's very difficult. That's that's a nightmare of a matchup, you it know, is. because I agree. of the. It, so that that's the only difference. But but this time with Roger, you know, grass or no grass, it's slow. It's playing slower this year. The, all all the signs pointed to a, Nadal having a good chance, and most people were predicting him to win it. And I think in his mind, he thought he was going to win it. So now I, I don't know where it goes from here, but I, I think he really needs to find what could help him. Gil is if he could face him a few times when Rogers, not at, like if he had played Roger at the 2017 open, when Federer lost to, to uh, Del Potro and then Rafa beat Del Potro. I think that would have been an ideal time to play him. There's certain times when he could have played him when Federer was not necessarily on his game and, where Nadal might have been advantage of that, but otherwise it, it, it's it's a tough road, and he's got to figure out how to. I, I don't even really think this time, by the way, that it was just right. You know, we talked about Rogers' improved backhand and the difference that made in the 2017 Australian final when Federer came from three-one down in the fifth to win. I didn't think Federer's backhand that day was necessarily that great, but overall he was so comfortable from the baseline. And that's why he won the long rallies. And in turn, Nadal didn't seem to have that finishing shot. He didn't seem to be able to find a way with Roger totally on the run and defending to find that last shot that he could crack that we're so used to him hitting off his forehand, whether it's down the line or cross court, where he concludes the point with a winner. He just could not do that on the day, and it was very discouraging for him. The first strike tennis to me, the new adaptation of his game, uh, perhaps he, he, it's just, it's not, it hasn't been there when the pressure has been at the highest, in my opinion, except, um, of course, what he was able to do on clay. Last one, we right. oh, yeah. went no, over time. Absolutely. No, yeah, that's a big exception. That's a big yeah. except because, yeah, it, in fact, it's really helped him the last couple of French Opens. I'd say even the last three because he hasn't had to be out there nearly as long and he's been almost as aggressive on the clay as he has been elsewhere and, yeah, the first strike there, very effective. Frankly, I thought it was very, it, it was there really post Nick Kyrgios, and he played well enough against Nick, but then Sanga, Sosa, Sam Query, those matches at Wimbledon, he looked, he was, it, I just was very impressed with his form then, and I expected it to carry over more. And, and now I think he's definitely given 
Federer tremendous encouragement. I don't mean that cynically. I just mean Federer comes away from this match feeling like, you know, I wanted to see what it was going to be like to play. And we hadn't played for almost a year and a half before Roland Garros. And how was I going to beat him there under those circumstances? But look at this. You know, slower grass. Never mind. I, I win in four sets. Now, if Natal had somehow managed to get back to five all, that but that break point was was very, it was distressing for him. He missed a really easy back end, had control of the rally, sliced it back in into the net eventually to lose the point, and was really chiding himself afterwards. So it was a rough day, and I, I think he, you know, he and Moya have got to go back to the drawing board a little bit and try to figure this out. It's not going to be easy. So one last one, not not a full out U.S. Open prediction, just a little a little tease. I want to throw this at you. In the last two majors, the the player, the member of the big three, who has been without the other one on their side of the draw, has went on to win. How important do you think that is? Because I think where we where we're at right now, I think it's impossible to predict the U.S. Open with without really seeing the draw. Very good point, and very uh, it, there's a lot to be said for that. Absolutely, because you know Nadal and Federer played in Paris and. You know, I mean, that was different. That was a little different because mm-hmm. Djokovic was on the other side and it, it could have worked against him. But I think what happened there, by the way, was, yeah, he didn't end up having to play Djokovic number one, but even if he had, the fact that it was that easy a match with Roger and it had been that windy might have changed the circumstances. But it does matter how the draw plays out and and, and how long the semi goes and how much you're taking out of yourself. And then the, the third member being on his own can really benefit from uh, you know, uh, just conserving his emotional energy a little bit. Uh, that's important. I do think in Djokovic's case that he's fully capable of not of, of beating them both back to back. And uh, and the other thing we don't know, what we don't know, Gil, is which Nadal. We, we we're kind of. I'm I'm convinced, maybe more than you, that we'll see the best Djokovic at the Open, and that he'll be ready, and that. He'll he'll be peaking again. That's my view of it. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know what to expect from Nadal there. In part, I hope he's not breaking down again physically like he did a year ago because he had to retire in mid-match against El Potro, which was a shame, and that was all brought about by the Hatchinoff match, which took a lot out of him, and then the 7th, 6th, and the 5th with team. Those were killers. And I just don't know if his body's going to hold up well enough, and I, I sure hope it, it does. And then, again, with Roger, what we don't know is he's only going to play Cincinnati. It's going to be similar to last year. He's going to try to get ready in a hurry and then come into New York. And it'd be. And he had to do this, especially after playing on the clay this year. But, again, does that leave him a little bit more vulnerable to some kind of a mid-tournament upset? I, I don't know. But I do believe, I do agree with you, the draw matters. And certainly the two guys that are stuck on the same side, that, you know, that's not, it's not ideal. It's not ideal at all. And, and in Federer's case, it could have ended up being much worse because, if Nadal had, had taken him to five, let's say, he was fortunate enough to get through that in four and save some energy in a three-hour match that could have ended up going four. I asked that question incorrectly, but thank you for uh, for picking me up and giving me uh, giving me an answer anyway. No, um, but you know, but you're no, but you're absolutely you know you're you're I know what you're getting. Yeah, at, I, and I, it I, does matter. Yes, it does matter. And and uh, but but listen, these they're. These three are not going. I guess what I would say is this, Gil, to finish it off. I, I would be surprised. I mean, next year maybe we'll see the breakthroughs. Maybe next year team wins the French. Maybe next year Sissipas wins his first. Maybe next year Zarev wins his first. We could see something come about in, 20, in 2020. But, uh, but I would be very surprised if 
we didn't get Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer as the U.S. Open champion. I, that that would surprise me this year. Yeah, and a little bit less so than Wimbledon, maybe with you know Zverev being in shambles right now, it being team's worst surface, Vavrinka's worst surface, right. Del Potro right. injured. I mean, uh, so much. There was so little outside the big three. So uh, maybe, and I think it's good for the sport if we get a little bit more um, push on those big three. Um, and but I agree, it might take a year. Yeah, it might take a year. And obviously, the Open is so is is looming just ahead. There's such a small gap in time. It's it, it's not like the period, say, between the Open and the Australian where some guys could really sort of gear themselves up for the next year and there's mm -hmm. potential for, for something developing. But here, it's so quick, and then you get the t transition to the hard courts, and out they go for the last major of the year. And I do think it'll be one of them, I must say. And and, and uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how the draw plays out and what happens. I can't wait for it. And then, in turn, we, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with the women. What did you think about Serena's match with Halep? I, I could not I couldn't actually see it so because well, because of where you know what Gil three unforced errors and I said at the time you can debate because I've done unforced errors that was one of the things I did when I was younger for Bud Collins on telecast on PBS and NBC and all over the place CBS and yeah I was one of the first to start charting that and it is a judgment call but what wouldn't be a judgment is if if it wasn't three then it maybe was five or six is what I mean. She was that good, and then yeah. in turn, she was her alacrity around the court, her her ability to, to be aggressive when she had to be. I mean, it was it was a very impressive performance, and Serena rightly saluted her for it, and she deserved to win two and two. She just didn't let her in, even after Serena held a couple of times at the end of the first set and a couple more at the start of the second. She could not get any you know, one break point against Simona. It was a great performance. You, you would have enjoyed it. I hope you get to see it on YouTube at some point. Yeah, hopefully someone uh, illegally illegally downloads it because if if you've been if if you're a tennis fan, you've uh, searched YouTube for illegal matches on there, and there's there's plenty of them, Steve. So I I also hope that I get to. <laughs> Rewind I'm going to take one. your word for that, Gil. You know that you know the internet better than I do. But I'm just saying, I hope you get to see it because I know your appreciation of the sport, and yes. I know how much you would you would value the performance that Simona came, uh, gave, and it was it was spectacular. Yeah, had to put some some family stuff ahead there Saturday. I was I was in Italy. It was it was crazy, but uh. Oh no, I understand. I'm yeah. saying, but get a look at it when you can. You, you you'll you'll enjoy it. Absolutely. All right. So, Steve Flink is an author of the greatest tennis matches of all time, writer for Tennis.com, member of the Tennis Hall of Fame. Uh, we always love to have you, and um, hopefully I see you again soon. Thanks, Gil. Enjoyed being on with you, and we'll, we'll catch up sooner rather than later. All right. Thank you. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.